Guten Tag. Welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. My name is Kimberly Trung, and to my virtual left, I have Doug Ameth. German, hey, guess who's got two thumbs and finally got those grubby thumbs on a PlayStation 5? Oh! Not me. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I got a couple you people go. have been asking on Twitter how that search is going, and I just I want to update people. It's going really bad. So. Oh. You know, it's interesting. I... I did get my hands on the new Xbox, and I was having a grand old time with it. And then I needed to get a new computer. Okay. And the new computer's running games better than the Xbox. So now I'm just kind of like, what's, what is the point of life? What's the point? Uh, to my virtual right, I have the wonderful Paul Ducklin. Hello, folks. My take on gaming, computer gaming, is really, really simple, and it solves a lot of problems. And that is that gaming was basically a solved-slash-finished problem when the original Tetris game came out for the IBM PC. You played it. Oh my! When you got, when you could clock it, passed three two seven six seven, signed short integer score. That was it. No need to play computer games ever again. Life was complete, and so you don't never have never had to buy any consoles. Well, Game Boy came out after that, didn't it? But you know, apart from that, it's always it's been a very oh. simple ride. That is a hot take. I was just going to say the same thing. That is a hot take. I did get into trouble as an aside. I once went into a coffee shop and I accidentally started singing the Tetris song. Boy, I got into trouble because the barista accused me of implanting an earworm, and which, of course, I'd accidentally <laughs> yeah. done. I was in awful trouble. I nearly didn't get served. That is very extreme. Yes, I was just going to say, we were. if you listened to last week's episode, you know that the nuclear option for getting rid of an earworm is new shoes. Uh, I can't wait. New shoes. It, it works. And it goes, like, it goes like this, new if you shoes. don't know it. It goes... Oh, man. Enact hey. the nuclear option. Concern I'm it. slapping the button. <laughs> you knew that was going to happen. Okay. I, I spent all that time mm, just taking that moment up. Because it's glorious yep. when you get it right. Alrighty, folks. Before we get into the headlines, you know we like to drop some quick wrecks of uh, the week. My quick wreck this week is, funny enough, I've re-stumbled back into an old cartoon that I loved watching growing up call, uh, called Recess. If you guys have not seen this cartoon, I don't care if you're an adult or you're a kid or you're a grandma, grandpa, I don't care what age you are, you will love this show. It's so good. It's about a ragtag team of group of friends um, and the politics they have to play on this playground uh, at this elementary school. It is so, so good. I'm re-watching it as an adult, and I can just say I love it to bits. It's so intelligent. It's so smart um, and so heartwarming. I guarantee you'll love hey. it. Watch it on Disney+. Plus. It's called Recess. Okay. Um, Doug, do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week? I do. Well, as you know, I'm a big Forensic Files fan, so <gasps> I do recommend that entire series. But one episode in particular I saw the other night that was really provocative. An old one? Is season 10, episode 37, okay. 2006. Now, in some parts of the world, it's episode 39. So you got to search oh. for it by name. The name of the episode is Hot on the Trail. May I read the synopsis to you? Please. A serial arsonist was on the loose in Washington, D.C. I know Each this of one. the fires was started with the same type of incendiary device. The perpetrator was very careful and seemed to leave no evidence behind. But there were clues in the ashes. 
It was up to forensic scientists to find them. Oh, that's a great episode. Duck, you are really great at promoting music. Do you have a music recommendation again this week? Yes, I'm not exactly sure how to say this, um, but I suppose it's oh. something like Magma Kammer. It's a band from Oslo in Norway. They describe themselves wow. as psychedelic garage doom. If that makes sense, I believe. Um, well, my own translation of magma camera is it's a like magma chamber, as in magma that comes from a volcano. Um, mm. So you can imagine what the music is like. Probably a lot of orange amps there. I haven't seen a picture of them live. If you like guitars that are tuned down a little bit below the conventional E, you'll you'll like them. Thank you so much, Duck. Okay. Before we get into the headlines, I'm just going to quickly tease the Ono oh of the week. And this is a loyal listener submitted Ono. Oh All I'm going to say is remember to be the best IT admin you can be, you also have to have interpersonal skills. <laughs> and this, oh boy. Is, <laughs> this is coming from a loyal listener. That sounds like a full length mini so to me. But, you know, let's hear it. it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Can't gonna, wait. It's great, guys. It's, it's a real good one. Um, Doug, what's going on in the headlines? Okay, we're going to talk about Apple AirDrop and a significant privacy leak. We're going to talk about the Linux team and a public bust-up over fake patches. And we're going to talk about our State of Ransomware report. But first, fun fact, Hey Jude by the Beatles was released in 1968 at 7 minutes and 11 seconds it became the lengthiest song to ever hit number one. Although that record was swiftly toppled by Don McLean's American Pie, <laughs> released in 1971. Which still hasn't finished. And running eight minutes and 42 <laughs> seconds. Oh. <laughs> that is a fun fact. Yeah, that's quite interesting. I've heard American <laughs> Pie many times, but I don't ever remember actually listening to the end. <laughs> yeah. You know how, how it is. It's just, it once it started. <laughs> that song for me, so... I don't, I don't detest that song, but that song for me is in the same category as a song I detest more than most songs, and that song is Hotel California by the <gasps> Eagles. You detest a, Hotel California. That is, yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I wish I did like it because everyone loves that song, and I just can't. It's like, it's like eating tuna fish for me. It's not my. Is, it, is the word yuck, I like, overplayed? I like both those things. And it's a song that's a story, and the story is kind of boring to me. <laughs> All right, Doug. Well, I'm with you. I'm with you for American Pie. Agreed. Not my favorite. Don't understand the Hotel California opinion, yeah. but that's for Maybe it's because you live in California. If it was like Hotel Minnesota, it might be different. <laughs> I want a song from the Eagles called Hotel Minnesota, and I want all the specifics of what would go on in the Hotel Minnesota. I need that in my life. It would basically be like a Motel 6. It would be like a, a Radisson or like a Extended Stay America. It wouldn't Is it be anything like, fancy. Oh, my God. Okay, well, I want it. Someone make it for me. Uh, this first news story, shall we get into it? Apple Airdrop has, quote, significant privacy leak, says German researchers. Security researchers at the Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany have just put out a press release about an academic paper they'll be presenting at a USINIX conference later this year. The paper itself has a neutrally worded title that simply states that the algorithm that it introduces, namely 
private drop, practical privacy preserving authentication for Apple AirDrop. Ooh, say that three times fast. Um, the press release is more dramatic, insisting that, quote, Apple AirDrop shares more than files. We discover significant privacy leak in Apple's file sharing service. Um, for those who don't have iPhones or Macs, AirDrop is one of my favorite features of having Apple devices. It is a handy feature that lets you share files directly, but wirelessly with other Apple users nearby. And so instead of sharing files via the cloud where the sender uploads to a central server from where the recipient then downloads the file, AirDrop works even when both users are offline using a combination of Bluetooth and peer-to-peer Wi-Fi for fast, simple, and local wireless sharing. The problem, though, according to the researchers, comes in the form of AirDrop's contacts-only mode, where you tell AirDrop to not accept connections from just anyone, but only from users already in your own contact list. Duck... What do we know about this vulnerability? Should Apple AirDrop users be concerned? I don't think they should, but it's still a fascinating story and well worth reading, even if you're not technical, because it it kind of explains how often the devil is in the details. And actually, these researchers did a paper at Usenix in 2019 where they found some other issues with airdrop that apple didn't think was significant uh, and had didn't fix uh, but two years later after after doing yet more work they said look we've come up with a new way of doing some of the stuff we found last time so presumably they're hoping that apple will go okay we'll relent and it kind of goes around the way that when you're out and about say say you and I bump into each other. We just, you know, our, our phones decide they want to talk to each other with AirDrop. We've both got contacts only on. How do we how do we establish that we're in each other's contact lists without exchanging our contact lists first? You know, before we actually agree, yeah, we want to communicate. And part of the beef with this is that Apple was doing it using cryptographic checksums, SHA-256. But because some of the items it, that get checksummed are things like your mobile phone number, Apple doesn't want to share the phone number up front, so it shares the hash. The problem with hashing phone numbers is when you do a SHA-256 hash, you get 32 bytes out, 256 bits of pseudo-random data. But you look at a country like the UK, it has a maximum of one thousand million, one billion possible mobile phone numbers. They start 07 and then they're followed by nine, let's call them pseudo-random digits. So the problem with just using a hash, no matter how big and complicated the hash is, is that you can actually pre-calculate all the hashes of every possible phone number of the people you're likely to meet in your country. Same for the US. Imagine you know their area code. You've got, what, 3-4 digits, so seven digits, 10 to the power of seven. And that was part of their beef, is that the way Apple was doing anonymization, saying we won't share the actual phone numbers or the actual email addresses, will just share hashes of them, they felt it's not private enough. You should take greater steps to anonymize because somebody could do a brute force attack. So that sounds bad, right? Now, the, I, I imagine why Apple said, well, this isn't really a big deal because when you're, before your phones exchange that data, they actually set up a TLS connection, secure HTTPS-style connection, where each end 
connects to the other, agrees on an encryption key. So all of those hashes that you need to get from which you could work out the phone numbers are encrypted anyway. Where's the problem? And so this is where it all gets... Some people consider this maybe a little bit fanciful. Well, the, these uh, researchers also discovered that you could technically do a manipulator in the middle, MITM, man in the middle as it used to be known, attack, where you persuade each end to connect to you and then you relay traffic between them because if you can trick someone into choosing everyone mode then you can get each end to accept a certificate that was not one signed by apple but one that uh, what's called a self-signed certificate that's so you can when you've got everyone mode on you can talk to people who've never got an iCloud account never synced with apple something like that and so they figured out this complicated sequence where they wait till they see people who are in contacts only mode want to start chatting they jump in and they deliberately jam that connection so it fails they hope that the recipient goes oh it's not working hang on i'll just turn security off drops back to everyone only mode and then they hope that the sender will go okay let me reconnect to your phone and in the meantime they've started up a fake phone with a name that's like yours so instead of kim's iphone they might just call it kim's phone they hope that the sender accidentally picks the fake phone by mistake so the recipient decides i'll turn off security so i'll go back into the less secure sharing mode and the sender accidentally connects to the wrong phone and then they can dig out these hashes and then they can crack the hashes and maybe figure the phone numbers of the people in your contact list. Phew. So you can see why Apple probably thought that seems like much ado about nothing. It is still an issue, I guess. And it's interesting that they were able to, to make this attack work. And I guess it's important, you could say, that they've come up with a proposal that says, well... Ignore all the other stuff. Here's a way that you can do it in a way that preserves anonymity, even in the face of there not being that many different mobile phone numbers to check. So that's the long version of the short story. You can see why people, are, people including Apple, aren't that worried about it, but it does have some good takeaways for how you might use AirDrop and other data sharing features on any kind of mobile phone you've got, whether it's Apple or Android or whatnot. I guess the easiest solution, and you put this right here in your uh, what to do portion of the article, is just turn off AirDrop if you aren't using it, right? Like The idea of AirDrop is that if you've got it sitting there listening, then in order for your phone and other phones to kind of meet one another and get to the point that they decide whether they want to communicate, if you have AirDrop off, that just doesn't happen. If in doubt, don't give it out, and that includes giving out beaconing that says, yeah, I'm I'm ready for files from anybody, folks. And that leads us directly into your second tip to make it explicitly clear, like, don't fall back to everyone mode just because your contacts-only mode keeps failing. Yeah, I, um, I have to admit, I have done that myself. You know, I've been at work. Yeah, same. As far as I know, yeah. everyone around me, I, you know, I'd be happy to receive stuff. I'm pretty sure there are no imposters around and you know, oh, it's not. Hang on, I'll just, I'll just turn on everyone mode. Oh, I can see you now. Great, send me the file. Done. Right. Mm -hmm. The problem is, as a general rule, that's a bad idea. Oh, it's not working because of the security. And I'm doing air quotes. I'll turn the security off because hey, I know who you are. And the point that these researchers are making is actually, 
that's the time that a person doing a manipulator in the middle attack can jump in. And so as a general rule, not just for airdrop, if you, but if you wouldn't do it for airdrop, don't do it for anything. Because if you think about a lot of phishing attacks, the crooks send you a document, you open it up, there's a weird thing, the document doesn't load properly, there's a warning, it says, oh, you need to turn off blah, 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 you need to enable macros, you need to turn on content, you need to turn off some feature on your phone, you go, oh, yeah, that, of course, security is getting in the way. So anything that you do where you think it's not working, it's supposed to be secure, but it's not working, so I'll turn security off. It's much better if you never do that. Just this story is an excellent reminder of why that's the case. Because my understanding is if you stick in contacts only mode, their attack doesn't work because they can't do the manipulator in the middle because they can't come up with a fake uh, airdrop access point or whatever you call it uh, with a self-signed certificate because they would need one that was signed by Apple. They can't get that. And our last tip is be careful who you connect to. Um, I think that's pretty obvious, right? Yes. Uh, I still thought it was <laughs> worth saying, right? Because you... No, exactly. It's always worth reiterating. But yeah, like if you get a random airdrop from someone in the middle of the day and you're not expecting it, don't accept it. Or even if you get can. one from someone who, you know, you've met up with someone in a coffee shop and say, oh, I'll airdrop it to you. What I do, I've I've what I consider to be an incredibly witty name for my phone. Um, but just in case, I, you know, given that I expect to receive the file from the other person, I'll hold up my phone and show them the name so they know exactly what it looks like. And they, if someone else has a similar equally witty, though not quite as witty as me perhaps name, they won't pick the wrong one. In other oh. words, make absolutely sure, right? Particularly yeah. uh, if you've let your phone have a default name and it's named after your given name because there might be several people around about have the same name as you or have just called their phone my phone and mm, so mm-hmm, right. you know, obviously that's a precaution that isn't doesn't just apply to airdrop it applies to anything and as a joiner or a carpenter would say to you measure twice cut once all right thank you note. so much <laughs> cheery note <laughs> just hits a line for all airdrops <laughs> Uh, Kim's advice, just decline all airdrops. Uh, That article is titled, Apple Airdrop has, quote, significant privacy leaks, says German researchers. And you can find that on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Okay, let's talk about Linux. And uh, there's this kind of dubious research project that kind of injected uh, bugs into uh, Linux patches to see if they'd get caught. And it, it loosely has to do with the University of Minnesota, although it's, it's just these researchers were at the University of Minnesota. And I can tell you, as someone from Minnesota, I did not go to the University of Minnesota, but I had a lot of friends that did. I can tell you that in my personal experience, nothing good ever happens at the University of Minnesota or any of its satellite campuses. Now, mind you, none of these things that affected me happened on campus property or because of any negligence by the University of Minnesota, but my car was towed there several times. My girlfriend cheated on me. I was pushed down a set of stairs by a hockey player. I threw up in a bag of my own food that I had just purchased from a gas station. I broke my watch running into a fence. I fell into a pool in the middle of winter. Thankfully, it was indoors. I passed out in a stranger's closet for several hours. Just in general, I've been overserved at many area bars and many near-campus apartment complexes, although I'm not sure that has anything to do with all the negative experiences <laughs> I've had at the U of M or at satellite campuses. Um, so another, another negative experience for someone at the University of Minnesota, and that's the uh, Linux team, right, Paul? Yes, I think 
if I if I can stop myself boggling, imagining you falling into a pool in the middle of winter. Well, this is quite different to that, actually, Doug. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I should hope basically, so. Basically, my understanding is that last year there was uh, a research paper that came out of the University of Minnesota, out of a sort of software research group there, a professor and one of his students. And they, they, the, I'll read the title of the paper because it's kind of quite bizarre. Um, it's on the feasibility of stealthily introducing vulnerabilities in open source software via hypocrite commits. Basically, let's see if we can try some real life supply chain attacks and no one will notice. And the idea was they'd introduce these kind of innocent looking fixes that were kind of half bugs that were neither really needed nor good nor terribly bad. And then I think the theory was they could come back later and put in another half a bug and they'd join up and make a full bug, something like that. And I think the argument that everyone took to when they, when they, this paper came out was, you know what, basically what you've done is you've proved that windows are not resistant to bricks being thrown at them. And the way you proved it was by doing just that. By investigating hypocrite commits, they turned themselves into hypocrites. The Linux community, understandably, was not amused. You're meant to submit patches because you think that they're going to benefit everybody. You don't do it so you can introduce half bugs and then write a paper about it. And so they came up with a what you might describe as, a, I suppose, a, a half-hearted apology. Um, and they said... We respect open source software volunteers. We honor their efforts. We have never intended to hurt any open source software users. Does this project waste certain efforts of maintainers? Unfortunately, yes. We would like to sincerely apologize to the maintainers, etc., etc. Unfortunately, it seems that someone else from this same research group under the same professor did something similar but different again this year and so the the one of the chief maintainers of the Linux code basically understandably threw out his toys. He said, please stop submitting known invalid patches. Your professor is playing around with the review process in order to achieve a paper or some in some strange or bizarre way. This is not okay. It is wasting our time and we will have to report this again to your university. And the researcher came back and said, oh, I'm you're slandering me, it's unfair, you know, it's kind of this, this, he admitted that he was wrong, he said, obviously, what I did was a wrong step, but then he goes on saying, you know, throwing his toys out of the cot, so the Linux crew said, that's it, no more patches from you, and because your research group's done it twice, and we don't know who's who at the university, for the time being, all Linux Patch sub kernel patch submissions from the U University of Minnesota on hold. Can't do it. So they basically brought a program on their school. And then the university obviously was then gets involved and said, well, obviously we'll have to investigate this. It does sound as though somebody overstepped. As inconsequential as these sort of pseudo bugs might have been individually, you can see exactly where the Linux team is coming from. And Greg Crower-Hartman, who's the chap who banned the University of Minnesota, his response was, 
you and your group have publicly admitted to sending known buggy patches to see how the kernel community would react to them. And you published a paper based on that work. Now you're submitting a new series of obviously incorrect patches again. What am I supposed to think of that? And because of this, I will ban all future contributions from your, with, from your university. And in a personal tweet, he said, Linux kernel developers do not like being experimented on. We have enough real work to do. And you kind of can't put it fairer than that. Even though some people have said, well, perhaps there's some egg on the Linux kernel community's face that they didn't spot that these pseudo bugs were pseudo bugs and some of them were allowed in in the first place. And yep. if you look at the comments on nakedsecurity.sophos.com, there are a couple of people saying, ah, they should suck it up. They're not really proper bugs. Maybe they should have done a better job. But the majority of people are just saying, what were they thinking? How can this possibly be research? Folks, if somebody's working to fix a product, you don't need to prove that you can submit bugs by submitting bugs. Go out of your way to make things better, not to make things worse so you can write a paper explaining how you did it. And the lack of sympathy, I think, is... is Perfectly understandable. Yeah, plenty of real bugs to find, if I'm not mistaken. And these open source project projects, a lot of times people are not paid to do this type of work. So you're just creating more thankless work for them. Well, it doesn't matter whether they're paid or not, right? That, that, that's kind of beyond the point, really, isn't it? As one of the commenters said, if somebody did this to my project, I'd be really annoyed. And who wouldn't be? You can see if they were going after like a company that they didn't like that has paid staffers that like kind of deal with these type of things. It's you're going after an open source software project that everyone that is like kind of universally beloved. It's a little, I don't think it makes it right or wronger, whether it's commercial or open source. The point is, I'm just asking you to tell me it's okay to do it against a company. Absolutely not. Paul, please. Of course it's not. Okay. Because it, Great. that's why many companies, our own included, have a bug bounty program, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, where there are rules of engagement, and those rules of engagement are actually there to protect both parties. It's to give you, if you're the hacker, it's to give you some, you know, legal protection. If you go about deliberately and purposefully trying to hack something in a controlled way that complies with the rules, it also means that the company can say, we don't want you deliberately trying to break things, which is why, for example, I don't think you'll find a company that has a bug bounty that says we welcome attempts to do a denial of service attack on us. Because you know, yeah. if you really want to, you're going to be able to. We know that's a problem. We have some ways of defending against it. You don't need to prove it again. And you know, it's exactly the same thing here. So once was bad enough, I think, is the theory. There's some real research they could have done. Maybe they'll start doing that now. The comments are popping off on this article. It's yep. wild. It's wild Have on here. Say. Have your say. Head on over to this article. Linux team in public bust up over fake patches to introduce bugs on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All right, let's stretch our legs a bit with technology etymology. Apple has been in the news recently after some product announcements. And while the venerable iPhone is the company's most successful telephony product, it wasn't the first. Mm. That distinction belongs to the Wizzy. Active Lifestyle Telephone, or WALT, <laughs> created in partnership name. with Bell South in the early 90s, but never mass-produced, WALT was a tablet-like phone companion that sported a touchscreen, stylus, handwriting recognition, fax functionality, caller ID, an address book, ringtones, and online banking access. 
Wow. And it fitted a, a small fancy. packing crate and weighed no more than 12 kilograms <laughs> with a battery that could <laughs> a, last a video for up to 12 surfaced, minutes. <laughs> uh, it surfaced a couple years ago, so someone has a video really? on YouTube of it in action. It is ex- It's kind of painful to watch, but it's kind of cool to watch. <laughs> the thing like boots up, so you're like, the phone's ringing, and you're like, bing, and it kind of whizzes and buzzes, and it's... But yeah, Wizzy Active Lifestyle Telephone, W-I-Z-Z-Y, Z-Z-Y. It's, it's almost just as well that it didn't succeed because otherwise we would have a product with that name. And that would, <laughs> the be, Wizzy. That would be like, imagine you go into a shop and they say, would sir like to look at the, the latest Wizzy product? And you know that as they say that, then- I beg your pardon, sir? Hotel California <laughs> will start playing in the background. You just know it. <laughs> Oh. Uh. Well, it's that time of year for the Sophos State of Ransomware Survey. It oh, is yeah. out. Uh, mm-hmm. If you are not aware, we commissioned an uh, independent research house. So we commissioned someone else to ask these questions. It's a research house called Vance and Bourne. They surveyed 5,400 IT decision makers across 30 countries. Uh, we don't know if they use Sophos products or not. We just know that they use security products. 50% are from organizations uh, from 100 to 1,000 employees. The other half are from organizations from 1,001 to 5,000 employees, and the respondents come from a wide variety of sectors. So we asked them various questions about their experiences with ransomware. And we had some interesting data, as we always do, but uh, one figure kind of stuck out a little bit more than most here, Paul, this year, didn't it? Yes. Well, actually, there are sort of two figures that I highlighted in my write-up of it on nakedsecurity.sophos.com because really you you need to go and read the report because the great thing about this report is it's not the cybersecurity industry telling you how it is. It's actual victims of ransomware explaining this is how it went down or this is how we felt it went down. So it's it's got that kind of (laughs) that real life anxiety to it from which you can learn a lot. But I guess the good news is that that the number of people who got hit by ransomware in our survey was down quite a bit from when we did the survey last year, 51% to 37%. So that's the good news. Of course, the bad news is that 37% counts as good news at all, because that's still more than a third of people said, yeah, it, 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 it happened. It really happened to us. It wasn't just that ransomware came in and we, we sort of headed it off at the pass. We actually got hit. The flip side of that is that we went to those people who said yeah it happened and we had little or no choice but to pay up and we said to them and how well did it go and that's where the really interesting figures come in because you imagine that in ransomware where the crooks whether they've stolen your data or not you know because they also do that and then they extort you oh pays the money Mm -hmm. we'll delete it which is something you, you can't put to the test. You have no idea whether they've deleted it. But at least when it comes to send the money and we'll give you a decryption program, you're kind of assuming that they're going to live up to the promise, aren't you? Because that's the whole purpose of paying the money to get the decryption tool. So if everybody paid and they didn't get anything back, then ransomware, you would imagine, wouldn't work. So I think there's a general feeling that Although it hurts to pay, when you do, at least you get your files back. Well, here's the thing. 4% of the people who paid up got nothing. Not a sausage. All a complete flop. And only 8% of those who paid up actually said, yeah, we did get everything back in the end. 
So uh, about one third of people who paid, and this is the bit where the crooks can prove that it's kind of worth paying, and I'm doing air quotes again, uh, one third of the people got less than half their data back after paying up. And uh, you can flip those numbers around, uh, by chance, uh, uh, 50%, about half the people lost more than a third of their data. So basically, the, the, the sort of flip over point, that the median point when you pay up, is that don't bank on getting, assume you're going to lose a third of your data. You might get lucky, but you probably you could do a lot worse. And that's the bit where the crooks have had all these years to sharpen their pencils and go, hey, you know, at least if you pay, you get your data back. So if that's what's happening, where they could, if they were good at their job and fulfilled the promises that they claim, this is where they could give you 100% satisfaction. If that's how badly they're doing on things that are in the public eye, one has to wonder how sloppy they are even if they intend to delete the files they stole from you man and actually doing that deletion yeah which i think is a long way of saying they're crooks and also it's it's so easy to <laughs> create your own roll your own ransomware now without having any sort of technical knowledge like you can go on the dark web and just go to some sort of app store and download something like satan or offshoots of satan ransomware that creates ransomware for you it's it's possible you you might you might not not even know how to decrypt ransomware if someone pays the ransom to you. And remember, oh, even, even if you join true. one of the so-called big gangs like the Reveal Crew, they're collecting mm -hmm. the money, they're doing the ransomware, they're doing the decryption tool. You you just have to satisfy them that you're a cool enough operator to go in and infect all the computers and steal all the data, and, and therefore to yep. squeeze the victim for the highest possible ransom. And, you know, so even these crooks who are supposedly the past masters, well, I was surprised at how how often it all... No, I wasn't surprised at how often it goes wrong. I think one should expect that from software that can't be publicly exposed and tested. Um, but it was quite confronting to see that um, in black and white or Sophos being a blue company, some, some of our... Some of the type in the article is blue, so I saw it in blue and white as well. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? That idea that 4% of people paid up got nothing. You might think, okay, I'll back myself to be in the, in, the, in the 96%. But it didn't end that well for about half of those people either. And, of course, you don't get to choose where it's going to work, and the crooks can't predict that. So you could go, okay, I'll take a chance. I'll pay the money. One third of my 100 laptops or my 100 computers so 33 of my computers are still going to be just as badly off as they were before I paid this giant fee. Yeah. Mm. You don't get to choose which one third those are, do you? Right. It could be all, <laughs> yeah. it works well on all your laptops because they're all running the right version of Windows 10. Maybe the decryption tool mm -hmm. doesn't work where it really matters on any of your servers. Mm. And you just can't tell. And so we, we, we have four pieces of advice at the end of the article. My favorite and mm. I, what I believe to be the most actionable and easily attainable is the third one. It's 
the cure part, not the prevention part. But let's start at the beginning. The four bits of advice I gave in the article. One is, and obviously I would say that, read the report. And as I said earlier, the reason for that is by reading the report, you're getting an insight into what victims experienced in real life when ransomware hit. And you're not just hearing somebody from the cybersecurity industry putting their spin on it. The second point, and I, we, we've spoken about this before on the podcast, and I know it can sound negative when you say it like this, but it's not meant to be. That's assume that it's going to happen to you. After all, even with precautions taken, it happened to 37% of our respondents this year that they got hit by ransomware. And we were kind of happy because that was down from more than half of the people last year. And of course, the third point. Yes. So here you go, Doug. Backups are your friend. Now, I know that for modern ransomware, where even if the scrambling part doesn't work at all, or the crooks get kicked out before they get to that point, because they've stolen your files, they're still going to try and extort money from you. But it's still worth having a backup, not just for for ransomware, but for a zillion other reasons. And if you do get ransomware where data is stolen and scrambled, at least with backup, you can do the unscrambling part without having to pay the crooks. And the big reason anyway is that from the statistics we have, it sounds like even if you pay, you're going to need your backups anyway. I would also caution people, my brother-in-law's company got hit with ransomware and they, oh, their gosh. IT guy lived on the other side of the country and he had been charging them for and telling them that he was making routine backups. Oh, <gasps> no. And they got hit by ransomware. No. And they said, okay, let's get the backups. And he said, oh, I didn't make any. So <gasps> it, oh, wow. if you're paying someone for backups you or you're charging someone for backups, you should make backups. And if you're oh. paying for them, you should ask for proof. No. That you, you know, get them in a place where you can access them. Right. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. And you know, Ouch. what a, what a simple thing to add to like a monthly a monthly bill like backups yeah totally oh yeah, I made them that's so bad that they thought yeah. that this whole time they were getting backups and, yeah. and like doing the right one, thing was, yeah oh. and it was one server that had all the gold on it and they they were like this thing had you know it's it's mostly text it would the backup would have taken five minutes like not even it wasn't even a ton of data and they, they were just like we lost it all because this guy said he was making backups and he wasn't oh no wow so verify those backups is Absolutely. What I'm yes that if is a fifth tip read it back uh, then it's not a backup and remember the three two one rule you want three copies one of which is the copy you're using, like the live copy, and you want two backups, not one, because if something goes wrong with the with the main copy and you're in the process of restoring a backup, that's when something's most likely to go wrong, right? The hard disk could fail, the tape could get eaten, the CD could break, the cloud service could go offline or out of business or whatever. So you want three copies, two ideally different technologies for your backups so that you don't have a common form of failure for both your backups and one of them offline and off-site. And the situ- thing you're talking about, Doug, if if you were routinely expecting that person to, even if they just sent it in a courier, even if it was a month old and they were sending a disk that was encrypted that you got and you could put in your own safe or your own safe deposit box and you could validate that it had your data on it beforehand, imagine how much safer you'd feel. Yeah, this guy was like, uh, he tried to he tried to dance around. It was like, oh, it's um, 
I did an offline one, so it's on this hard drive, and I'm I'm in North Carolina, and you guys are in New York. Like I I can't really get it to you quickly. So what? maybe you could just find the data somewhere else. Like you guys backed it up, and they were finally like, just send the hard drive in the mail. And he's like, I didn't do it. Oh, yeah, that's how the. It's when you call their bluff and say, I don't care how far it is to North Carolina. Ship it. I'm getting oh in the car now, God. and I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna do a road trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you've got three and a quarter days to find it. <laughs> yeah. It basically, if you think you've got a backup. You haven't got a backup. You absolutely have to know. And as we yeah. said, that is not preventative. So we haven't done tip four yet. Get some kind of layered protection, defense in depth, as you'll also hear it called. Don't rely on any one technology to protect you because the crooks who are, dare I say, good at ransomware attacks, they aren't relying on one way of getting in. If plan A doesn't work, they've got a plan B. If that doesn't work, they've got a plan C. Once they're in, they'll spend their time trying to learn what your network looks like. They'll even go looking for things like your repository where you have things like your naming convention for files, your instructions for IT operations, all of that stuff. So in by the end, by the time they're at the point that A, they've stolen your files, and B, they're ready to scramble all your data they may very well know your network better than you do. So don't rely on, oh, well, I'll, I'll just have a firewall. I'll just have an endpoint protection program. I'll just have a backup. What you need is something that can actually actively resist the crooks in many different places. And just as we're saying with backups, you need to see the logs and read the report, of course. Um, but uh, take a deep breath before you go in there. <laughs> Yeah, 65% expect to be hit by ransomware in the future. Yeah. And, you know, the good news is that those 65%, to be honest, are probably in a stronger and safer position than the 35 who are going, nah, she'll Absolutely. be right. Mm -hmm. No oh, one's yeah. interested in me. I'm fine. No one will notice. Mm -hmm. I'll just carry on paying my, my imaginary friend to make imaginary backups. <laughs> That's a terrible story. Oh, oh yeah. it is terrible. I don't think he works with them anymore. I think yeah, I would let him go. I, yeah, I no. hope not. And I hope he yeah. learned a lesson. Compared to submitting fake patches to the Linux kernel in order to, to weasel an academic paper out of it, um, yeah. that's nothing compared to telling someone you've made backups and not doing it. <laughs> we <laughs> should not be laughing, oh, yeah, yeah. yet we cannot help it. No, we can't. Let's, let's laugh at the oh no. Yeah, let's laugh at the oh no. Um, thank you, loyal Ooh. listener from Germany who writes, funny story from my early years as an IT admin back in 2014 in Germany. This was around the time when all these crypto Trojans popped up everywhere and we had a case and this is what happened. Normal day in our company, mostly doing phone support. Around 10 a.m., got a phone call. Issue. Their file server is slow and missing some data and asked if we could investigate. So I connect through the RDP and immediately saw this odd how to decrypt your files.html on the desktop and my brain went into extreme emergency mode without thinking what I was about to do. This server had 400 gigabytes of Excel sheets and all kinds of company data. So you could say this was quite important. 
Usually, I would guess you shut it down immediately, but as usual, I was more interested in finding out the where and the what. In this case, that was the right decision. I checked the processes and connections on the server and quickly saw a PC from finance with hundreds of sessions opened, although it shouldn't have access to the share. The PC names had a room number in the name, so I jumped up and ran to that room shouting, away from the PC, threw myself <laughs> under the desk and unplugged the power and everything else, took it and went out the door without saying what was going on. <laughs> My coworker confirmed that there was no more activity on the server as soon as I came back into our office, so we began investigating what actually happened. Turns out the employee from finance was surfing shoe shopping websites and hit a drive-by download of a Locky Crypto, which picked oh a random my. server and used a zero-day in SMB to encrypt all files on that server. A few hours later, we began restoring the backup. See, backups, guys. But, uh -huh. my, but my boss came around and told me that the woman, fairly young and new to the job from which I stole the PC, was quite shocked from the event and that I had to go to her and explain why I did the raid. <laughs> so I did. Yeah, I think that's quite reasonable, right? Like some yeah. person, clear the decks, clear the decks. <laughs> yes. Away from the PC. Exactly. <laughs> so I did. I told her what happened and why I was in a hurry, and she understood this quite well. She explained to me her point of view then, and I understood quite well too. What she experienced was about five hours in fear, sitting around and wondering what just happened with no PC to work on, alone with her thoughts. <laughs> fearing that she was losing her job and thinking about what she did wrong and what happened. He puts, I'm really sorry, in parentheses. So I guess we both learned something that day. She will probably never shop and surf for private things again on a work PC. And I learned the importance of social interactions, even in stressful situations. P.S. <laughs> P.S. Wow. And he says, Back up your stuff. It makes life easier. After, guys, yep. we just talked about this. Yep. After this event, we invested hard in backup systems and IT security, and by God, it saved our butts a few times. The <laughs> right. end. So when you said, you know, social interactions, next time you go steaming into the office and like... <laughs> Stand out of the way, please. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be this poor woman who, like, is you know, da 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 da. da you're on your computer, and Was a it man. Something I said. <laughs> but exactly, bust into your office and screams away from the PC, snatches it, and then runs away. I think I would have assumed that it was about to burst into flames. Whereas the irony was, it sounds like it was the rest of the network that was going to get engulfed. Speaking of Onos and submitting your Onos, you you can, of course, submit your Ono to me on Reddit. My username is Ono, it's Kim, O-H-N-O, it's Kim. If you don't want to submit to Reddit and you want to go a safer route, I highly recommend emailing us directly, tips at sophos.com, or you can leave an anonymous comment on any of our articles on nakedsecurity.sophos.com, or you can DM us on any of the platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Naked Security. And of course, if you've liked what you've listened to, why not go ahead and leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts? I swear, hand to backups, it is only 30 seconds to do. And of course, until next time. Bye.
Magma Kammer. <laughs>